Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we have an amazing guest today, Betty Spadaro, who for many people is almost synonymous with Altamont, and she will be in September hitting the century mark, and she's in town today for what else? The Altamont Fair. So welcome, Betty. Thank you for introducing me. (laughs) (laughs) So just to start with, can you tell us a little about what you've done today? I I hear you've had a whirlwind day at the Altamont Fair. Just kind of start at the beginning and walk through the festivities. Well, we started in the office to meet the person who was the director of the Altamont Fair, Amy Amy Anderson. And I introduced her to a relative who uh, came with me. This relative is of hers, but a friend of my friend's, really a daughter of one of my friends. She's come from Ithaca to be here today. That's great. And then from there, we started, and we went down to the school where I taught, which was brought down at the fair years ago by the Orsinis. From the Bosenkill, right? From the Bosenkill. And I had planned to be there for half an hour so that Fran, who is portraying the teacher, could have her lunch hour. So then I greeted the various people as they came in. Well, I'm going to interrupt your flow of the day. We'll return because I just want to hear a little more about that. Um Tell just for people that haven't been to the fairgrounds, if you could describe for us what that schoolhouse is like right now. Yeah, right now it has curtains. Very few of the rural schools ever had curtains. Oh, but the teacher before me had curtains, and I always I was there for five years, so I washed those curtains. And then finally, after about the third year, they deteriorated, so then I put new ones in. And I keep track of those curtains since the 40s, and I keep so that we have nice new curtains all the time. Oh, isn't that a nice homey touch? It's a one-room schoolhouse. And just tell us a little about what it was like to teach students, I'm assuming, from a wide variety of grades. It is not easy. Yeah. Because I would have to be prepared to teach a person who was an eighth grader about science, eighth grade science, and also a child who was about five, just learning to read, or maybe somebody's in the fourth grade, or somebody might be in the third grade, and often they would move, and then another group would come in, family. I had families. I remember the Pulliams had a reunion over at the fair not long ago, and all of the Pulliam siblings, <laughs> we had a picture in the paper, stood up in front of the schoolhouse because they had all all been there. So today when you were there, I hadn't realized you were filling in for the person acting as a teacher, and so were there people coming to talk to you about your days there? Yes, Right, they were discussing how did I ever manage a person who was 15 with a child who was, we'll say, five. Yeah, so is there an answer to that question? Not necessarily. (laughs) It wasn't easy. Yeah, you just kind of had to play it by ear, I bet. 
The Pulliams were excellent. They're a wonderful family, and I've always kept track of them, and they always keep track of me. Oh, isn't that great? So then just progressing along with your day, after the schoolhouse, what happened, what happened next today? Where did you go at the fair after that? Where did I go after the schoolhouse today? You know, you were there for oh, oh, yeah. today. Yeah, just walking through the rest of today. Yeah, I walked across to the antique car building because my son has many of his tools, and his sign is there that he had on his business. Oh yes, Dick Spadaro was someone who's very near and dear to my heart, and. Um, I know he just loved antique cars, and he restored so many of them. And that's nice. I hadn't realized a lot of his things are there at the museum now. <laughs> Lovely. That's really nice. So then after that visit, what happened next today? What did you do after that? From there, we went down to the old barn, and we're discussing how people were able to make that with hardly any tools, just hard labor. This is great the, old, big the Dutch barn. The, yeah, the Dutch barn. Yeah, that's almost like a cathedral when you step in there. It's just so high, and those hand-hewn rafters all fit together with mortise and tenon joints. As Mr. Rao used to tell people how to put barns to bet together. Yes, and Betty here is referring to Everett, the late Everett Rao, who was probably roughly a contemporary of yours, maybe a touch younger. But yeah, he really knew his, and now his grandson, Tim, is carrying on that tradition. I he, didn't know that. Yeah, he's going to be active in trying to restore the old Crown's house on the edge of Altamont, because that's all that old post and beam construction, and he's working with a friend of his um, with an Indian name. His name is J. Cougar White Cloud. So after your barn visit today, what happened next at the fair? I would say we came back up to eat at a delicious restaurant, and it was uh, well done. From there, we went down to the big ceremony of the... Uh, the veterans, motorcycle. Oh, the uh, the veterans, weren't they? The honored? veterans, right. Yeah, so tell us what happened there, because we didn't have a reporter covering that. We're busy putting oh, together the too paper. Bad. Yeah. Well, we had the persons representing the Democrats and the person representing the Republicans. We also had the Commissioner of Agriculture and naturally uh, the VFW 7062 was represented read a beautiful poem in the Legion of uh, 977 was there. Nice. Many flags. And I understand they sang happy birthday to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did. (laughs) Oh, great. And you made time in this busy schedule to see us. And, you know, I think most of us I hate to say, when we think of people that are 100 years old, we tend to think of people who are 
maybe confined to a wheelchair or even a bed and Betty just strode in here on her own steam and just looks like to me like she's always looked I don't even see any gray hairs in that curly <laughs> head That's, I've got many myself but you did so well walking us through your day I'm hoping you can walk us through your life just let's start at the beginning where were you born I was born in Amsterdam and how is it that you came to Altamont? Well, that's rather interesting. My mother remarried after losing her husband uh, of Roman, mm-hmm. and he was from Altamont. His uh, son was a former owner of this uh, newspaper. And that was Shorty Vroman. Oh, Shorty Vroman. Yes, I've seen pictures of him. and He um, ran the linotype. Yes, he did. That's one of the pictures I've seen of him at the linotype. And that linotype is still over at 120 Maple and still working. Oh, it is. Yeah, Jim and Jimmy Gardner still use that hot lead type. And I always think my father was a newspaper man of the old school. And he worked for a big daily. And... That's, to me, the sound of a newspaper. It's almost like rain on a hot tin roof, that noise of the type falling into place, um, the hot lead type. That's a wonderful skill to have. The trouble is you have to melt that. You do. And my son, whenever he met somebody who had worked there, uh, melted that. Each one would have a little memory Oh, not that a kind scar. of a memory. Right. Yeah, that's not a good memory to have because no. it burns. It mm. does, yeah. Mm. Certainly, writing with a computer key is a lot, a lot safer and easier, but there's still something that just excites me about the hot lead type. So how, how old were you when you moved to Altamont? I had just uh, finished college, and... Uh, and what college had you been to? Oneana and then also Albany State. So this and was both for education courses to become a teacher. Always education. What made you want to be a teacher? How, how was it that... I always wanted to be a teacher as a young child, very young. Do you know why? What it was that motivated well, you? Well, maybe because my mother had said that my aunt was a teacher and she had died when she was 19 with scarlet fever and because i heard maybe about being a teacher maybe that's what inspired me i have no idea yeah well in that era most teachers were women but it was still a very rare thing for a woman to pursue her own career like that so um tell us about your very first teaching job well it's sort of comical i'll explain this I was working down in East uh, Durham as a waitress. I had secured that job through Marilyn's mother, and we were about eight of us college people, and naturally had a good time when we had time off, which Mm -hmm. was seldom. In those days, the people did not have telephones as they do now, and naturally what they don't have now. They do have now that they didn't have at all. And my mother wrote me a letter saying, you won't believe it, it's like a dream. Because we had no 
Most of us, when we stood in line for graduation that year, had no jobs. And when we did have a job, it was only about 800 maybe, or $1,000 a year. So in this letter, she mentioned that she and her husband had gone around to look at these various rural schools up in Bern and up in Knox, and she had written that they looked worse than when she went to school. Oh dear, so dilapidated. This, this must have been in the midst of the Great Depression then. Is that, yeah. So, uh, but she said, they came home sort of disappointed, not able to find anything that would be suitable, or they didn't need any teachers. Meanwhile, in a store where uh, my stepfather was walking in, he saw a man by the name of Cyrus Spadero. And he thought, oh, he is a trustee, I know, of a school up about a mile up the hill. And he said to him, do you need a teacher? And he turned and he said, yes, I do. I need a teacher. (laughs) And my stepfather said, well, my stepdaughter needs a job. And he said, she's hired. (laughs) Without an interview? Without even meeting you? Oh, my goodness. So you must have had a job that probably a lot of other people wouldn't have taken. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And so what happened after that? Well, I just came back, and it was September, and I met the Spadero family. And is Patrick, was he one of those in the family? Yes, he was one. Okay. So he was a son of Cyrus? Was he? Uh, He was a, I've got to think now. (laughs) Take your time. Yes, uh, he was, Patrick was his son. And tell me about first meeting your future husband, Patrick. Was it love at first sight, or how how did that unfold? Well, probably more so. Uh, he came to inspect to see if the fire were working well in that pot belly stove. That's what he said. <laughs> he really wanted to check out the new teacher. <laughs> oh, that's great. So that's good. And was the fire working well in the pot belly stove? <laughs> I don't know. I guess there was another. There was another kind of fire that was about to start. <laughs> so, um, how long did you court each other before you got married? Well, World War Two started. Oh, right in the middle of oh, that gosh. year. Oh gosh! And therefore, he was in service for almost four years. And where was he in service? What branch of the government was he? What military? Army was he in the army. He built air. Uh, Airfields. Oh, my. So he was with you know, the air people as well as the Army. So you had to wait four years. Did you write a lot of letters? Yes. <laughs> did you save them? I did for a long, long time. Oh, gosh. I just came across a little trove my mother had written my father during World War II. And right. So when he came home from the war, did you get married right away? or two, was there... two months later. Oh, that's pretty much right away. Mm-hmm. And where was the wedding? Those days, we did not have many weddings. Uh-huh. You just got married because you didn't have any money. Yeah. But what we did do is we went to New York City and saw the 
Rockets. Oh, <laughs> you went to Radio City Music Hall. And back we came. And he went to work, and I went, and I, oh, I now Susan, who was with me, her, she's related to the Spaderos, who married a Frank Spadero. And, well, anyway, what happened was I've, I've lost my train of thought. You were talking about it, coming back from New York City, seeing the Rockettes. You right. went right to work. And, right. Yeah. Oh, what I wanted to say is we were de- uh, married the 26th so that we would save the district from per- uh, having a substitute. So when it was time to after the recess of the Christmas I went right to work. Again, oh. I didn't take any days off. So much for a honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> right. And where did you settle when you were first married? Where did, where did you and Patrick live? Right across from the, the post office, the one which is there now on Lark Street. And I know you've described for me before... No, it isn't Lark Street, it's Park Street. Park Street, yeah. You described for me before the kind of landscape that's still in your memory of Altamont. And if you're able to, i just love it if you could walk for our listeners kind of up and down Maple Avenue and Main Street. Because you did this for me once and were telling me every building what used to be there. Just could you describe some of the businesses that were right here in, in the heart of Altamont that you can remember from that era? Oh, yes. Oh, we had... Well, for instance, as you turn the corner... By the A&P there, which is Hungerford's. Well, I don't well, think it's Hungerford's Right now. now it's called the Veronica's Restaurant. Okay. But yes. Then and was Crable's hardware store, and then they had a building next to that, which he was loaded with his uh, sales. Everything he sold was basement, and it was packed from the early, early, I guess, teens. They had... Everything out there. And Patrick worked there, for didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. And so it was like a department store, but it had all kinds of everything They didn't needed. sell food. Yeah. That's about it. Okay. Bicycles and stoves and refrigerators and lawnmowers, shirts and blouses and napkins and tablecloths. Oh, cards. my gosh. Wouldn't that be handy if we had that today? And I remember, too, you were telling me once just how different, or maybe not so different, but it was a time where people were so trusting. You said your son Dick, when he was little, he loved wheels. He always loved wheels. And he would just get on, as a little, little boy, he would just get on his bike or maybe tricycle, I can't remember, and just he could leave your house and just pedal down the street and go see his father at Crables or go to the soda fountain and just... It just seemed like such an idyllic way to raise to raise a child, right? Yeah, he would, I would just not worry about him. He'd be way around the corner up near Prospect, and he was probably about seven. Yeah, no worry. Yeah, that's just a great way to have your world. I wish, I wish we could have that again today. So. To get back a little more to your teaching career, um, I think you were in the very first group of teachers at Altamont Elementary School when the school was new. Is that right? Tell us a little about Altamont Elementary School. Well, they, I, my sixth year, I was hired there in the old school, which is now uh, demolished. Oh, in the high school. 
the well, big, it was, the high school was everything. Right, I see. And they had it was so starting, you know, at those years, the baby boom. And so people were in the uh, Reformed Church, the uh, Legion. There's another place all out. So oh. there just wasn't enough classroom space for right. all the kids. Right. I see. So I hadn't realized I always, you know, we write frequently about especially older people who graduated from Altamont High School, and they always talk about how sad it was it was torn down. But I hadn't realized it had grades, you know, that were much lower than high school. Right. One, not kindergarten. Oh, started with first grade. But when I started, they started kindergarten there. But I was started with fifth and sixth, two grades together. I see. And so the... At least it was not like two grades is a lot smaller span to have to get your lessons prepared for than it is in the one-room schoolhouse right. where you had that huge expanse. But how was it for the kids to go from most of them probably came from settings like the Bosonkill School, very, very small single classrooms to this large brick building with many classrooms. What what was that adjustment like for them and for you? I, I really never thought of the adjustment yeah. uh, from, we'll say, the Bosonkill to our school. I really... But Never just what thought. a difference, a little tiny clappered one room to a big brick. And then you were also teaching in the new elementary school, too, right? Well, then that was, it wasn't demolished until the new one was built. Mm-hmm. I believe it's 1952, I think. Sounds So bad. I was there from 45 to 52 in that older school. And then it was demolished probably four years later. And it should never have been demolished because it was a good, sturdy building. It could have been used yeah, that's a shame. for offices or something. Yeah. So how was it to be in a spanking new school? Did the kids like that? Was that fun for them? It was a whole new difference. It's thoroughly different because we had a principal and a secretary, a nurse, Music, art, we weren't used to that. Yeah, but what a much richer experience for the students. And they even started teaching Spanish and French in the starting with third grade. And then how long did you continue as a teacher there? What happened is a person, will say, who was in third grade started with French, and he moved right along with that teacher who was in fourth grade. And fifth grade French. The next class, the fourth graders, started with Spanish and they continued right on up to it. Yeah, that's the era. I went to school in Gilderland. It was at the different school. It was over, you know, on Route 20, Gilderland Elementary. And yes, everybody in my year learned French. <laughs> and then the next year, Spanish. But the school district in later years did away with teaching foreign languages at the elementary level, which is it. such a shame. It was. Yeah. So um, how how long did you continue to teach there? How, how long were you a teacher at Altamont? Elementary. I guess until I continue, I retired. Oh, okay. So that was your career. I I'm there. That's why you're such so well known in the community. Nin- I, 
I, I uh, retired 1979. That's a good long career. So what did you do after you retired? I bet you are somebody that has a lot of different interests. Well, my husband and I started going to Europe. We, he and I went to Europe three years, different times. And went to London and England, rather, and uh, Switzerland and Germany. And then we also went to Australia. And, and then um, he died, and then a woman was promised that she had a partner to go to Kenya. And out of the blue, she decided she didn't want to go. So they asked me if I'd go. So then I went to Africa with her. And then she wanted to go to China and Japan, which I went with her and uh, the Malays and quite a few of those Asian Betty, I had no idea you were a world traveler. So tell me, what is it? Why is it you like to travel to such far places? I like to read about countries, and I like to. When I see people, I usually ask them if they had an odd name, Uh what nationality they were, and I've always been interested in people. Yeah, and so when you go to these countries, you probably can't speak all those languages how uh, how is it that you they usually will get a hold of a young well, i haven't been there lately yeah but uh, they usually get a hold of a young child who's taught english and the young child even like nine or ten will be able to translate the, oh isn't that lovely yeah i don't know how it is now i think most people now have been brought up with english yeah it has become a universal language so of all those travels is there one place that stands out for you as a favorite or a place that you most yeah. liked what is probably that? kenya kenya with all those animals oh well tell us about kenya I've never been and probably will never go. What did you do there? What is it that appealed to you so well, much? Well, usually, you have, naturally, they have a, a person who's a guide, and you, at such and such a time, you go out and get in the car. And, you know, the guide always knows where he's going in this area. Mm-hmm. For instance, it might be elephants. So elephants are all in a certain area. Or lions lying there like kitty cats up there. This is cute, you know. <laughs> and for instance, I said, oh, look at that lion. And the fellow said, look again. And we're not used to really looking well at things. And all of a sudden, you can see there are ten of them all around there because they blend right in with oh the... Oh, my gosh. Um, well, and that's just such a nice metaphor for life. We're not used to really looking well at things. And you seem to have an ability to do that, you know? I try. <laughs> yeah. And also, you just mentioned in passing that Patrick had died, and yet you kept on traveling. And I know it must have been very hard to lose your only son. I wonder if you have any thoughts or advice for people because so many of us when we get older and we lose the people we love we just kind of hunker down and turn in and you've just kept on being outgoing do you have any advice or thoughts on how you manage that? just read books and play bridge and 
And we have some chuckles here from people who are listening. This is good advice. Read books, play bridge. And then I followed Dick, you know, when he was racing. Yes. In the pits, and I met many of the race drivers. Had parties up there at 2 o'clock in the morning. And you'd go to these parties? Oh, my. I would go and get the pizza. And then after they got everything together after the race, then they'd land up... If they were racing in Saratoga or in Vermont, mm-hmm. those were the two places. But otherwise, if they were racing Canada, I had nothing to do with that. Couldn't go that far. I see. But they would stay overnight. You slept on the top of the table oh. <laughs> in the boat outside. Oh, In my. their big vans or all over the place oh. on the floor. <laughs> So, Betty, you are a real adventurer. But when you mention books and the importance of books, do you have any certain ones that you read again or consider favorites or worth recommending to other people? Well, I certainly am interested in biographies or of World War II or World the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So you like history. Yes. Isn't that interesting? And some of those, World War Two, is history you've lived through yourself. So you must have an interesting perspective when you read those. Mm. Gosh, our time has gone so fast. We're through our half hour. Do you have any parting thoughts for people? Something I haven't asked you you'd like our listeners to know about? or? Well, I haven't mentioned Eastern Star. Oh, well, go I've ahead. I've been very active here in this area, Albany, Rensselaer, Schenectady, District Deputy, and then I was also up, when I went up to Warren, Washington, I had the same job. Then I was also appointed to represent New York State in Wyoming, and I represent New York State in Virginia. Well, tell us why Eastern Star is so important to you. There are fewer and fewer fraternal organizations these days. Tell us why why that matters. Well, because we're doing things for others. Scholarships for nurses, scholarships for teachers. If someone has lost his home, we're ready to give them some supplies. Cancer, we always have a certain project every year, the Grand Matron it has a certain one. Well, Betty, this is a perfect note to end on because I think you're somebody, my theory why you've stayed so young is because you care so much about others. Others. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome.